You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. 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 To the Freedom Pact. Today on the show, we are joined by Safi Barkal. Safi is a second generation physicist, biotech entrepreneur, and former public company CEO. Safi received his BA from Harvard and his PhD in physics from Stanford University. In this conversation today, we discuss Safi's fantastic book, Loon Shots. How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. Some of the topics that you will learn about today include the importance of asking great questions, how to cultivate effective new learning, important lessons to teach children, and the importance of nurturing crazy ideas. I don't want to waste any time with this one, so without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with the polymath, Safi Barkal. Man, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me on your show. Man, so I need to know, loon shots, is the word going to get added to the Oxford English Dictionary? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you're, you're closer to the source where you are geographically than me, so I have no idea. But um, it was funny, when I was looking around for a title, uh, I just kept struggling over the concept that I was talking about is the fact that, you know, the ideas that people now take for granted, some of the biggest ideas in not only science or technology, but world history, like the idea of you know, the scientific method, that there are laws of nature, the idea of a democratic form of government, all these ideas that seem kind of obvious in hindsight were initially written off as crazy. And I kept looking around for a word that might mean something like that. And there wasn't, there wasn't anything in the English language that fit the bill. So I made one up. And publishers originally, originally were like, no, are you kidding me? What is you would have made up word for a title that doesn't make any sense? What are people going to, you know, how are our salespeople going to go to bookstore owners and tell them what's the book? They're going to be confused. You know, is it a loon shot or a moon shot or whatever? And it's like, I, I don't know. I, I tried it on a few people. Seems, people seem to like it. So why don't we just go with it? And so that's, it's been kind of nice to see it take off a little bit. I love, I love the book. I loved reading it. And in fact, I loved reading it so much that it was a, a newsletter that I wrote um, a couple of months back. And I want to read it to you. And this was when I reached out to you. And basically okay. every week we do like a book of the week. So this was, uh, I found this in an email, which I sent out from June. And it says, book of the week, loon shot, Safi Barkow, how to nurture the crazy ideas that win wars, cure diseases and transform industries. I was really impressed with this book by Barkow. The combination of psychology and physics, human nature and business culture, algorithms and stories all make for a fantastic read. You can bet your bottom dollar that we will be trying to get him on the podcast. <laughs> That's really nice of you to say. Thanks. Uh, and here I am. I don't know how much are. later, but here I am. <laughs> so but let's, let's dive straight into it. So the start of the book, you dedicated the book to your father, John Barkow. And you said, for my father, John, who showed me and so many others how to hold truth near and persevere. So let's start there. What was your childhood like? <laughs> Am I on a couch? Am I paying like a, you know, 300 bucks an hour? You know? 40, 40. There's the oh, there's the bell. You're done. Out of here. Next. Uh, no, my, both my parents were scientists and uh, astrophysicists, astronomers at uh, Princeton University. And uh, otherwise, a normal childhood, just like anybody with two astrophysicists, tenured professor parents, just like all of your listeners, I'm sure. No, we, um, you know, to us, our dad was the guy who like couldn't operate the VCR. 
not sure you actually know what a VCR is now, but you know, the guy who said like, it turns out, you know, he was nominated for the Nobel prize many times and created, you know, very widely regarded in his field. But to us, he was just, you know, regular dad who tried to like figure out a wrench and how to put, you know, bookshelves together and wasn't quite working. But one thing that they, you know, growing up, uh, really instilled in me that made a big difference for many years was the idea of asking questions of figuring out how things work, but persistent, not accepting sort of simple explanations. And years later, I remember, um, I, I eventually became a physicist as well. And then transitioned into the business world and started this uh, biotech company. Um, but years later I was reading, a biography of a physicist named Isidore Rabi, who uh, grew up in New York, won the Nobel Prize for some, you know, some uh, work that he did in particle physics. And someone asked him, was there anything about your childhood that you think in retrospect really helped you become the kind of person who could win the Nobel Prize? And he said, I don't think there was anything special. Well, maybe one thing. All the kids when they came home from school, their mothers asked them, what did you learn today? Well, my mother asked me, did you ask any good questions today? And that really kind of stayed with me that there's so much about figuring out stuff, not only in the scientific world, but in the business world and in your personal life that comes down to, did you ask any good questions? And did you keep asking questions? Did you not stick with the superficial answer? Let's just even take personal relationships. You know, you're in a, you know, you're a, let's say you're in a marriage or you're, or even in a professional intense relationship sometimes are like marriages, a business partner or an executive team or, and someone is doing some weird behavior that might be pissing you off. You could just say, stop. You could say that's sort of pissing me off or do this other thing. Or you could start asking questions. You know, where is that coming from? You know, is the person really just not understand X? Are they doing it to spite you? Or is there something going on that you're not aware of? Or do they have some like instructions that they thought they should be doing X, you thought they should be doing Y, and you're just, you're just not getting it. So the power of asking really good questions kind of translates and transcends arena. Like Isidore Rabi's story, you asked me like my childhood, I think we learned that the search for truth is what's important. You know, for my parents, money is, it's just, it's just not interesting. For, you know, I think for a lot of high power, successful academics, that's true as well. They're not really in it for the money. They're in it because it's exciting and it's fun to search for truth, to try to see mysteries in the world around you and try to see if you can figure out how, how and why is it working. And the, the pleasure that you get when you figure that kind of stuff out, and sometimes you're the first in the world to sort of figure it out. Or if you're an entrepreneur and you've asked a really good question about a marketplace, why is it so hard to do X? Why do streaming services suck so bad? Someone might've asked about, well, I don't wanna say anything about a company that rhymes with Microsoft or, <laughs> or Blipe, you know? But then there's, you know, this other company rhymes with boom, comes along, well, do they really need to be like that? Do you really need to go through all this complicated stuff? Can we just make it a lot easier? Asking questions about your marketplace or about science or about your personal relationships, all of those domains, if you just keep asking surprising questions, it's amazing how much you can learn, how much you can discover, how much further you can get along than, let's say, your competitors who aren't asking those questions. So if I got anything out of the childhood, it was that the it was the pursuit of truth, and to keep asking good questions. I got so much I want to pick up on there. The first thing um, about Rabbi is at the start of the book. I know you give this amazing story, and I remember I took a photo of it on my phone because I found it particularly insightful. And it was either Crick or Rabbi, and one of them asked him, "What's the secret to win the Nobel Prize?" And he replied, oh, that's simple. I know what to ignore. Which one was that? Which, who, who was that? That was Francis Crick, who Francis won the Nobel Crick. Prize with uh, Jim Watson for the double helix. I love that. Uh, I but love that's that. in, just incredibly 
it's so true again in actually let's, let's keep with the three domains business science and personal so in science uh that happens just so often i'm in the middle of a science project right now and every early stage science project there are reasons that if it's important there are reasons it shouldn't work if there are no reasons that it should fail it's probably not important if it seems kind of likely to succeed it's probably not important if it seems likely to succeed somebody else probably did it or it's pretty obvious to a lot of people the really important ideas you know i think i talked in the book about a scientist i worked with judah folkman who came up with a new way to treat cancer by blocking blood flow to tumors uh, i wrote about uh, kira endo who came up with a new way to treat heart disease by blocking statins in the blood again an idea that seen by by uh, blocking the production of cholesterol in the blood with which eventually became the statin drugs lipitor and crestor and so on all of those ideas seem nuts they were all loon shots what we were talking about in the beginning you know blocking cholesterol is an example every cell in your body is, has cholesterol in it the cell the wall the membrane of a cell what's it made out of cholesterol are you going to tell me you're going to put a drug in your body that's going to attack every cell in your body maybe it'll just destroy this membrane of every cell that's absurd there's no way that could possibly work but he knew what to ignore right and then there were dietary trials oh you know maybe this cholesterol idea you know there was these studies a long time in the 60s that said well cholesterol is bad for you because if you look at elevated cholesterol in the blood that seems to correlate with uh, heart disease so maybe we should eat less cholesterol less eggs and so on and you can still find that in the supermarkets now you know low cholesterol foods turns out all those trials failed and made no difference how many eggs you ate um, and it turns out years later, people realized most of the cholesterol in your blood doesn't come from your, the food that you eat. It comes from conversion of sugars and fats into cholesterol that happens in your liver. So it kind of doesn't matter if you eat eggs or not eat eggs. If you actually, if you eat a lot of sugar, your body will convert it into lots of cholesterol. So, but in any case, as he started working on the project, all these dietary trials with cholesterol failed. And people had tried a few early cholesterol drugs, anti-cholesterol drugs, and they were kind of disasters. They, turns out they were bad drugs, people didn't really understand them, but all these things looked bad. And he knew what to ignore. He said, it's true that those dietary trials fail, but that's not what I'm doing here. I'm lowering production in the liver. Okay, I'm not doing food, you know, food intake, and those are kind of different. So he knew to ignore that. And then there was these other drugs that didn't work very well. And he said, well, they're not really doing what my drug is. They're totally different things. They're not really blocking cholesterol. So he knew what to ignore. So the really great scientist, the message behind that quote from Francis Crick, number one, they go after problems that seem unlikely. Because like I said, if they seem likely and if they work at your first crack at it, they're probably not that important. That's what I wrote, the, wrote about called, I called it that idea, the three deaths of the loon shot. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't fail the first couple of times, it's, it's probably not important. And number two is they know what to ignore. So the, all the people telling you, all the conventional wisdom, um, they knew how to ignore that and kind of try to pursue truth. Try to ask good questions. Like everybody's saying that, well, what about X? You know, if, they, if they're doing these dietary trials, well, is, is diet, does diet really correlate with the level of cholesterol in the blood? If you actually look through the data, it kind of it doesn't. So asking good questions, knowing what to ignore, both of those turn out to be really important. In science also, you know, in, in business, you know, let's say... Uh, it was the case when a little search company started off that everybody told them you can't make any money in search engines. You've got an algorithm that you came up with as a graduate student that ranked pages with a, you know, kind of a, this sort of unusual prioritizing algorithm by how many 
other sites linked to that page and how important were those sites. Not a very complicated algorithm. Uh, but yeah, all the smart money and all the investors said, oh, that's just like a yellow pages. You, you might, you, you're probably too young. I don't even remember what a yellow page is. I remember was. yellow page. Only <laughs> 24, was, it's, man. <laughs> it's this thing that called a book. <laughs> I'm hoping you know what that is. It's a book that was actually in the US. It's yellow. I don't know what it is in the UK, but um, it's just, you know, fun numbers. Like, there's no money in yellow pages. What do you sell a few ads? Like, forget it. And so, you know, most people pass. It's ridiculous. They knew what to ignore. They said, you know, the internet's kind of a, it's early days. It was the 90s. The internet's kind of a mess. Um, actually, sorry, it was already 2000s. Uh, it was, internet's kind of a mess and it's kind of a pain to navigate that mess. And these early search engines, uh, they really are like yellow pages. It's just slow. And I, I, we kind of think like people like speed, like getting to where they want to go faster. So I think we'll give this a shot. So they knew what to ignore. That of course became Google and that was uh, Larry uh, Page and Sergey Brin who came up with this algorithm as grad students. And most stories are like that. They kind of know what to ignore. I love that concept, um, the signal versus noise. That's something which I really think about a lot. Um, before we delve further into Loon Shots, because um, I love this thread and I'd love to pull on it more. Um, so you mentioned the, the impact that your father had on you and um, you know, give you that sort of that scientific sort of background and the way to sort of think rationally and logically through problems and, and the importance of asking great questions. What will be some underlying philosophies that you will look to instill in your child? Cause I know you're a new dad, right? Yes, I am. Congrats, H. man. Congrats. Thank you. It's awesome. How about you? Any? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, not nothing young. yet. Nothing yet. I'm only young. I'm only young. So give me time. Yeah. Thinking about it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I think I love the biological meaning that um, I think is almost destined to give you. I mean, I think just the, if you look at something like suicide rates in young males, I mean, if you is there any coincidence that most of them don't have children? You know, I, I don't hmm. think it's a coincidence. So, so yeah. What's the typical marrying age where you are? Typical marrying age. Um, I'm not sure. I imagine it would probably be sort of late twenties, you know, sort of early thirties. Um, right now in the UK there, I saw a statistic a couple of days ago that there are now more women over 40 that give birth last year than women under 20. Wow. So I think we are shifting towards a, an older generation type of thing. Why do you think that is? I think that um, a large part of it is to do with the success of women in um, workforce. I think it's a paradox in the sense that if you went back 60 years ago, the average woman in the UK had 3.7 kids on average. Now they're only having, having on average 1.7 kids. Hmm. So I think that that rise of women's success in the workforce um has which is obviously a fantastic thing i, I don't think anyone would say the women's rights aren't, aren't a great thing but i think that that has come at sort of a trade-off for, for a, a typical family structure um and i think that in 50 years i think i think that that could be a a, a big issue to face mm. hmm. i just find it interesting how the variations in typical marrying age, like in cities, they're so much higher than in rural areas and what that tells you about. Yeah. You know, the, par the paradox of choice and um, human psychology. Mm. But I was, I was late to get married and, um, uh, and now very, very grateful that I did and have a family. So yeah, something, well, something in your future, I'm sure something in my future was that a decision by choice or was it that you waited to find a specific set of traits what what was the uh, i think it was a combination that i was uh running a company i started at a relatively young age not young age not so young for the pure tech sector but young 
for other sectors, um, you know, for biotechnology or uh, other areas outside of pure IT in my early 30s. And uh, I was single at the time. And I, I think there was an, entre an older entrepreneur friend said to me, when you start a company and if you're totally committed and really in for it for the long haul, either you marry at the beginning or you marry at the end. You rarely <laughs> marry in the middle because you're so focused, blinders on. Uh, that was my family and, you know, making sure you survive through all the ups and downs that are typical in the industry that I was in. And uh, it doesn't leave a lot of bandwidth for attention to things outside of work. And, you know, who knew women like attention? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm joking. I'm kidding a little bit, but I, I don't think I was really ready. And uh, I probably didn't understand well enough um, what made sense for me because, you know, I have an odd background of, uh, you know, for the last 20 or so years of business person, entrepreneur, but the previous 20 years as kind of a scientist, academic. And uh, so that's kind of a strange, and then I was living in New York and Manhattan and most of my friends were artists or writers or other kinds of entrepreneurs. And so I was in a bunch of different worlds. And so it didn't, um, it probably took me a while just to sort out, like you say, what, what kind of worked for me. And then I got lucky on the right person at the right time. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So you meet the right person at the right time. You have a child, one child, two child. I, we have I, two, we have two uh, young yes. kids right now. That's amazing. That's amazing. So what sort of, uh, I, I'm going to ask you, a, I know we're talking about the importance of good questions, but I'm going to ask you a stupid one. I'm going to do the inverse of the point. If you were to pass away and you could only instill two to three points for them to, two to three skills even, I would say, for them to go through the rest of their lives with, what would you pass on to them? Why would that you even remotely think that's a stupid question? That's a very good question and focusing question because it forces you to think about any, anyone who gets that, receives that question, it forces them to think about what's in, really important to them. So it's a really hard question. I'm not sure I on the spot could answer that. I know no, one thing um, absolutely comes to mind, which is love of learning. Cause I think that, takes you far love of learning is one curiosity too and certainly kindness and respect is three um probably it's a big question so before i died i would definitely have to think about that a little bit longer than you know on a podcast but um but no that's a great question i appreciate it. i appreciate it uh, yeah that, that's been something which i've been thinking about a lot lately and and I think like the asking questions is is so so important, uh, like as we've established with it, and and something which I've thought about in my own life is the importance of delaying gratification, and there's that great book, The Marshmallow Test, um, by Walter Michelle, and uh, I, it's just insane how viable of a skill that is. Um, has that been something relevant to you in your own journey? Um, you know, I think the, the marshmallow test, I think is a little oversimplified. And I think mm. even social scientists or psychologists who have studied that later, um, have talked about the next level of the sort of five second summary beyond the five second summary of that. Um, but I think there's app, what, what I certainly agree with and has been important to me is playing the long game versus a short game is and by that i mean really just mean thinking strategically by that i and by that i mean what's your resources that you have that are accessible to you and how do you want to prioritize them what big goals do you want to go after and given that once you decide those are your goals and how you want to focus your resources by resources i don't just mean dollars but i mean you know for many people that's time yeah you, right. you only have a certain amount of time certain amount of minutes in the day 
how do you want to allocate those again towards what goals, towards what objectives? And you know, you can allocate them towards short-term stuff, which is, you know, uh <laughs> I want to feel good. I want to watch a movie. I want to have a couple beers. So I want to eat a pizza, you know, because it tastes, you know, or I want to eat the, the, you know, three bags of potato chips because they taste good. Well, it is going to taste good for the first 45 seconds. That's really short term. But 15 minutes later, <laughs> after that, you're done with three bags. You're not really going to feel good. So that's, you know, having a little fun, but that's, you know, short game versus slightly longer game. But in life, you also, you want to think about um, short game versus long game. As an example, and that applies, you know, in many different areas. Again, we were talking um, science, business, and personal. In science, let's say you're running a research lab. Short game is, well, I could, here's something in this one paper that I read. I could do a little improvement on that. It would take me three months and I would have another paper. Well, that, that's true, but how much do you really get out of that? On the other hand, if you step back and say, you know, if I didn't write paper, you know, do incremental stuff for six months, but invested in learning a new technology that none of my peers knows how to use, that might take me a year or two years. But at the end of that year or two years, I'll be really well positioned. So that's in science and in business, it's the same thing. Hey. I could, I have a week, I have, you know, let's say I work 10 hours a day and let's say I work five days a week. I could spend, you know, 80% of those on sales calls and I could convert the next guy and the next customer, the next customer and the next customer to buy my product. Okay, well, that's good for the short term because I could get a few more sales. But what happens nine months from now when a, you know, a competitor comes out with a product that's actually a bit better, a bit cheaper, and it's a bit more features. They just did, they disappeared for nine months and worked hard on a problem. Instead of making sales calls, they just totally doubled down on research and development. And now you're dead because they have a product that's better than yours. So again, there's short-term versus long-term in business. In sports, the way actually, actually the metaphor I often had in my, hand, in my head is a tennis one. I used to play uh, in the uh, competitive tennis in the juniors. And when I was growing up, um, the big players were Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi. And I remember reading, I think it was Pete Sampras's biography, and he talked about he was this, you know, tennis prodigy, like a lot of these ultimate champions, just doing really great and playing in the 12s or the 14s or whatever he was. And his coach said, um, listen, I, I think you're, you know, one of these once-in-a-generation players that has a shot to go all the way, like really – win the grand slams, be the best player in the world. But you're not gonna make it with your back, your current backhand. You have a one-handed backhand. You can't win Wimbledon with a one-handed backhand. Grass is too, um, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> At the time he had a two-handed backhand and uh, that's what the coach told him. You can't win Wimbledon with a two-handed backhand because your reach is not long enough. The grass is too fast so you can't reach all those balls that have very high speed. So uh, we need you to switch your stroke. Now imagine you're a champion junior player. So that means you've been playing for 10 years already. I probably start when you're you know, well, five or something and play until you're 15 and you're just doing fantastic. Your strokes are absolutely ingrained into your head. And now somebody says, I want you to hold the racket differently and hit it completely differently. Well, what's gonna happen? You're going to play lousy. So he went out and played and lost like every match for months and months and months. In fact, he didn't start winning. He worked on his one on his one handed backhand for two years. And he lost all the time. He went way down in the rankings. Two years later, boom, wins number one. A year after that wins the US Open. A year after that, roughly Wimbledon. That's playing the long game. So you talk about the marshmallow test, I think of it a little bit more as playing the short game versus the long game, which you wanna, which you wanna be. If you really wanna do well, you wanna think strategically. You wanna think about 
what are the resources I have? What are the goals I want to achieve? How do I prioritize my resources against those goals? And those are kind of the long-term goals. It's not about, you know, how many pizzas can I eat or how many potato chips can I have? It's about being willing to make some sacrifices in the short term for the long-term stuff, like writing this book. I had to, you know, uh, invest in the research to learn, let's take World War II history. You know, there, there have been a million articles and books written about World War II history. To tease out, and you know, most of the people who write about World War II history is pretty superficial stuff. It's hard to tease out something that's new. But I, because of the work that I'd done with President Obama's Council of Science Advisors on national research and getting exposed to kind of the birth of national research in the United States, which is what really helped the U.S. lead the world uh, in science and technology for the last 70 years. And that's, you know, the computer industry, the um, internet, the transistor, biotech industry. That came out of World War II, came out of the system that, as it turns out, kind of one person really led the development of that system. And I got really curious. And I said, well, it, it's interesting because that person and the system that he built in World War II to really turn the course of the war. And I, I don't know why I just don't see that in kind of popular history books and all these movies and stuff. It's about other things. And this guy's name is never even mentioned, although at the time it was widely recognized. So I could kind of write a superficial version of that which would be the short game approach. Or partly it was my own curiosity, but partly it was kind of a long game. I just, I don't, I don't like books that just write or, or people who just talk about kind of superficial history parroting sort of the first thing they read and some simplified explanation, but who ask good questions. Like people say, oh, breaking you know, they ask like, well, if this guy played, you know, here's one question. If this, it's clear that this guy played an enormous role, why is he not in all these popular histories? Why is his name not even mentioned in one out of 10 or one out of 20 histories? Uh, I, maybe I'm getting something wrong here. Well, the turning point of the war was the Battle of the Atlantic when the U-boats were sinking all the ships between the U.S. and England and England, the U.K. was the only surviving nation in Western Europe and Hitler and Nazi Germany was trying to strangle. They had tried to bomb England into submission in the summer of 1940, and that failed. It was the first loss uh, for Hitler's armies. They had succeeded in wiping out the rest of Western Europe in a matter of weeks in 1939 and 1940. And they got turned back in the air battle in the summer of 1940. Uh, and then he decided, well, if I can't uh, bomb England into submission, I'm just going to starve her to death. It's an island. So the U-boats. The U-boats started in the beginning of the war. His admiral, Carl Dunitz, told him, hey, we're going to win this war with the U-boats because um, we've got most of, almost all of Western Europe. And uh, if the U.S. can't resupply Western Europe, it's just gonna, they're just going to be finished. That'll be it. We just cut off the Atlantic. And that's what happened. U-boats, allies had no answer, and they just kept sinking ships, more ships every month than the allies could build. They were just sinking them, boom, 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 boom. And what did uh, England and Ireland, no oil. You know, what do planes run on? Oil, what do tanks need? Oil, what do trucks need? Oil, no oil, no war. It's finished. And by uh, spring of 1943, England was down to three months of oil. I keep saying, in, I mean, you know, the United Kingdom, Great Britain it was down to three months of oil. And we were, the allies were three months away from a completely different world map, a united Nazi Western Europe. Popular histories say, well, you know, the code breaking including a famous movie with Benedict Cumberbatch and, you know, Kira Knightley, who I actually, I love, like, I think, you know, Cumberbatch's awesome actor and Kira Knightley. I, I really love Kira Knightley. And, um, but you know, the, the movie's 
based on a lie. It's, it's, it's a great story, but breaking uh, the Enigma machine code had nothing to do with the Battle of the Atlantic. It was left out of that story, and in fact, most popular histories, is the fact that B. Dein's German intelligence in Berlin had a thousand people who had been working furiously on cracking the British codes from 1938 to 1943, and they had done so, far better job than the Allies. And they were reading every intercepted British uh, naval transcript in those five years. And so the few months here and there in 1940, 1941, when they broke uh, the German code, it made no difference because they'd send a message, hey, move your ships. And the Germans would read it six hours later, radio their U-boats, hey guys, uh, their ships moved over a little bit, why don't you move over? And you can see in the logs and the transcripts that two days later, they would sink those ships. And that was discovered in the summer of 1945. I mean, the, the Allies kind of figured it out by the end of 1943, but by that point, the war, the, something else had turned the course of the war and it didn't become as relevant. Um, which I'll, I'll explain in a second. But what happened was in the summer of 1945, after you know, the war was over and uh, Hitler was dead and the actually British went to Berlin and captured the uh, Nazi archives, and they started going through the archives and they started seeing every one of their transcripts to their ships in German, real time. And you could actually read the report. It's now online by the head of British Signals Intelligence written in the fall of 1945. And British typically have a very stiff upper lip. You know, they're very reserved in their reports and so forth. And you can then read this guy's report and he's sort of going through and he's going, he's look, you can see him reporting on the archives that they've just gotten from the liberated Nazi, uh, you know, headquarters. And then he's going, holy I don't know if you can say that on a podcast. Yeah, but basically, he's like, holy shit. Because he was the head of British Signals Intelligence. And he's just reading all these secret signals that they we thought were completely confidential. He's reading them in German. And then the ally, then they, of course, they interviewed the captured uh, officers. And like, yeah, yeah, we, we, we were reading all your codes for, until, you know, for five years, from 1938 to 1943. And he's like, holy shit. <laughs> And yeah, wrote it up in a report and uh, three copies were made and were buried for about 30 years. And because obviously that's not a really good story. It's a much less good story than the Kira Knightley, Benedict Cumberbatch version of uh, Bletchley Park and these heroic code breakers and so on. Uh, but eventually it surfaced. Now what happened was the popular histories of the war were written in the first 10, 20 years after the war. And then the other ones just built on those. And so this story grew, but in fact, it really made absolutely no difference. And in fact, it comes down to asking questions because you can just get a small table. Churchill has these lovely memoirs. Actually, you know what? Hang on. Here, I keep this on my bookshelf. This is church. This is Churchill. You see that? The Gathering Storm. Wow. It's incredible. <laughs> if anybody really loves military history or history, it's, it's totally, he won the Nobel Prize for literature, as, as some people know, but um, it's actually unbelievable reading. Yeah, it's a little table. It's not secret. It's like you can look for the data and you look in the you know, professional papers by military historians. U-boat lo losses to U-boats by year. 1938, half a million tons. Sorry, 1939, half a million tons. 1940, a million. 1941, two million. 1942, like eight million. Just exponential growth. Well, if the code-breaking machine, you know, in 1940 or 1941, early in the war made a difference, why did you both losses keep growing? That's a good question. And the answer is because it didn't make any difference. And what happened in the spring of 1943 was something else. A new technology came out with the B-24 Liberator bombers that sailed out over the Atlantic with this thing called microwave radar. And all of a sudden, they could see the U-boats, day or night, fog or shine, and they began shooting them down like shooting fish in a barrel. Within six weeks, 
U-boat losses fell 95%. Six weeks after that, Karl Dunitz, the head of the German Navy, who had correctly said, we can win this war with the U-boats. Had they started a little earlier, it would have been a very different war with the U-boats. Issued a radio blast across the Atlantic. All remaining U-boats withdraw. The Battle of the Atlantic has been lost. He'd already lost a third of his fleet in just six weeks. More in the six-week period than in the entire prior war. Any year in the entire prior war. And so that was it. At that point on, the, from that point on, the outcome of the war was more or less inevitable, as Churchill and Roosevelt knew it. Both Churchill and Roosevelt who had written each, were writing each other privately, but also recorded later, they recognized that the U-boat was the most serious threat of the war. And when that was done, the outcome of the war was essentially inevitable. So um, that comes back to asking good questions and long game versus short game. I wasn't able to pull together that whole story until I'd really spent months and months and months of getting past superficial histories, going to the Library of Congress, getting, you know, uh, here in the US and getting recorded transcripts, because the story that radar was invented in Britain is not quite the right story. In fact, it was actually much more complicated and much more interesting. But again, you have to keep asking questions. That was one thing we talked about. And you have to be interested in the long game versus the short game. And for me, the long game was getting to the truth, getting to a more interesting truth than you usually read about. And for me, that was partly my own curiosity. I want to understand what happened. And the stuff just didn't add up. Like the stuff I was reading, it just didn't make any sense. And eventually I realized this is a third uh, lesson or message or framework, and that's the power of dwelling in borders of going between worlds. So most, many historians, if not most historians, were either professional uh, journalists or professional uh, students of scholars of history, but they're not trained in technology. They're not scientists. Now most scientists, most scientists who understand science aren't trained in history and aren't trained in digging and very often don't have the luxury, which I admit I had, to invest a year of just reading uh, and learning and understanding and speaking with experts and asking questions. So I was lucky in that I was able to go from the science world where I understood some of the basic elements of the science involved to the entrepreneur, or the business world or the organization world, which is what Vannevar Bush, who was the person who put all this system together in the United States created um, so I was able to kind of understand where he was coming from because he was not only an academic and an engineer and a very talented scientist, but he was a brilliant leader and organizer. He was also an entrepreneur. Um, so because I had spent time in some different worlds, I was able to see or make some connections between different worlds. You know, if I'd been a grown up as a pure professional historian, I, I just wouldn't have had the background to understand the science stuff. And if I only did science, I don't think I would have had the background to understand what it was that Bush did and how he organized and what an achievement, why the military kept resisting his ideas and suggestions, all these crazy ideas like microwave radar or, or something called the proximity fuse, which made a huge difference. It's allow, it allowed missiles to, you know, if you're firing an anti-plane gun, it allowed missiles, you didn't have to hit the plane, you could just be anywhere near it. It improved accuracy by 10x. That turned the course of many, many battles in the latter part of the wars. So, uh, war. so um, the power of dwelling in borders, of having a different, somewhat diverse background or experiences that you could pull in is a resource. And if you're willing to play the long game and pull on those different threads, you can really do something very interesting. I love the. Sorry, but I got I got off on a long story there. I don't know Man, where you wanted to go with this podcast, that was, but that was amazing. Uh, that was amazing. Um, I think 
that um, the two things- way, I don't mean to interrupt, but of course, uh, just for the people who are listening who want more of that story, there's a lot, I don't know if you have show notes or whatever you do. Of course, yeah. Uh, but the first chapter in uh, Loon Shots is, tells that story in much more detail. Uh, or if you go to my website, I actually ended up making that chapter free. If you go to my website and type in your name there, uh, yeah. they'll, you'll, you can download just the first chapter and you can get that World War II story that has much more of the details. And it has the references if you're curious to learn more about that history. Um, you can find it, find it there and... There's just so much to that history that's fascinating. Um, um, and it gets back to your question of long game versus short game. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. So no. wherever you want to go with this podcast is fine with me. Sorry if I got off on a long story. <laughs> that's my pleasure, man. So yeah, so as, as Safi mentioned there, uh, Loon Shots is linked in the description, as is Um I think one of the things I'd love to know about you, and you sort of mentioned the benefits of having diverse backgrounds in various fields, which you did, you went from academia to a CEO of a biotech, biotech company to an author. So I would love to know how do you choose projects? Curiosity. What am I really curious about? Where do I have the most questions? Um, and that, uh, is something that I've been doing, you know, since I was a kid, whenever, and I, I kind of use that as a litmus test for whatever field I'm in or whatever I'm working on. So I was, um, I started in physics and theoretical physics and science uh, as a young person. And I was really curious about understanding how things work in the world. How do you connect how a machine works to how, you know, why the sky is blue to why the clouds float in the sky to why, you know, when you're driving, well, it seems like you get these mirages of little liquid pools on the road ahead of you, but there's no water there. And so how, why is that? And how does the world work? And it's so much fun and so exciting when you can understand a few basic principles and see that you can really tease out these principles of how the world works. Um, and then I, started getting, uh, I went many years in physics, but in, I was in this area called particle physics, which is the science of the very small, what's inside atoms, what's inside protons and neutrons inside atoms, what's inside the quarks, if anything, that are inside protons and neutrons. Um, but that field has a little bit gotten stuck. And after years of working in that field, um, I was getting less and less curious uh, because it just also didn't seem like there would be a lot of progress. And I liked solving real puzzles and mysteries. And it, that field had become a, a lot more mathematical. Um, so I got curious about a different area of science or physics, which is like the science of the very cold when really weird, wacky quantum mechanical things start happening that seem totally bizarre. And things that are much more connected to the world around you that you can see and measure. And so uh, the properties of systems that suddenly change, for example, uh, and that actually ended up uh, being the genesis or the basis of the book that I wrote, which is why organizations suddenly change behavior and drawing as an example, I have a glass of water here. So I stick my finger in and I can swirl it around. And that's always true, except as I lower the temperature, right at 32 Fahrenheit, boom, those molecules stop sloshing around and they line up totally rigidly. And I can't stick my finger in anymore. Why? How do they know to suddenly change their behavior so dramatically? So what is fascinating is the answer to that question is what helped the allies win the second world war is what Vannevar Bush used in thinking about how to innovate faster and better inside a 2 million person organization. Um, is what ultimately helped the U.S. lead the world in science and technology as the nation adopted a lot of his ideas after the Second World War. And it gives you a whole new way of thinking about designing and building better companies, organizations, systems, a whole new set of rules that you can use in practice come out of that idea. So that 
the sort of the genesis of that book and that uh, of the, the Loonshots book. But that traces back to stuff that I'd learned as a scientist, as a physicist. But I just kept following my curiosity. If I just stuck in that one area of physics, it, I started to lose my curiosity a little bit because the questions felt very similar over and over. So then I got curious. Well, I, I've been at a university pretty much since I was born, about 30 years old, and I haven't set foot off a university. I'm a little bit curious about this thing called a job that a lot of people seem to have, where they go into an office building and they do something. And then they get this thing called a paycheck. And I'm like, that's really interesting. I understand, you know, writing grant proposals and refereeing papers, uh, writing equations, but what's this thing called an office building? And what do they do there all the time? That just seemed really mysterious to me. And how does that, I just sort of ran, you know, I'm a scientist, so I looked at the numbers and I realized, I think kind of like 99% of the people in the world do that and are not in universities and are not professional physicists. That's interesting. I wonder what they do every day. How does that make the world go around? Like who pays them for what? And then who pays those people? And uh, so I got curious about that and how the world works. And that was sort of fun and interesting. And so I joined a uh, consulting firm that takes crazy people like physicists in and teaches them stuff about the how to solve problems in the business world rather than the science world. It was a management consulting firm called McKinsey in New York. And they were experienced at taking in sort of non-traditional hire someone who's not coming from a business school or a law degree or something. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. People are going to pay me money and they're going to teach me stuff. It's the opposite of when I was in school. Like I had to pay a lot of money for people to teach me stuff. Now they're going to teach me stuff and they're going to pay me and feed me and like give me nice clothes and stuff. So like this is awesome. And um, uh, it was a great learning experience. And you learn, I mean, not only from books, but from solving, being, uh, working very closely with some very impressive managers and leaders of some well-known companies and organizations um, and going behind the scenes. And I would say the most important thing you see there is not what they do right, but what they do wrong. Because you learn a lot more from mistakes than you do from things that go well. So when you're behind the scenes and see it every day and talk to people sort of openly and candidly, you learn about what did they wish they'd done differently? Where did they feel like they made mistakes? And you learn a ton from that. So that was good learning. But then I, you know, was I really curious about solving other people's problems and you know and telling them about it um not really actually after a few years uh i was more curious about what you know can we create some can i working with some really impressive scientists bridge the gap between the science world and the business world and do that in a way that benefits people and at the time you know i my father was uh, sick um, and uh, uh, you know, everybody experiences somebody with cancer, or some terrible disease. And the idea that I could possibly make a difference in giving people on earth more time with their loved ones, that just felt very satisfying in a way that nothing else I'd ever done uh, felt. You know, Pursuit of truth is is exciting and fun. Um, helping big companies become even bigger and more successful that's that's fine. That's a reasonable goal. And uh, um, you know, I learned a lot. But this felt really emotionally powerful and significant and very motivating. And I was just very curious about how can I get this done? How can we put together a team and raise money and find the right science and develop the drugs and do what we can do to make a difference in, especially in families and loved ones, giving them more time with each other. So that was uh, fascinating and powerful and emotionally very 
uh, compelling. And, uh, but in all of those changes, kind of a common thread was curiosity. What did you learn about yourself from working in cancer research? What did I learn about myself? Mm. Um, well, there's so many things you learn the first time when you start a company when you're young. Um, and uh, in fact, when I first started, one of the things I did was go around and ask every intelligent, thoughtful person that I knew, especially six older successful leaders, what did they wish they'd done differently? And uh, so, you know, you learn as a leader or a manager, you learn a ton of stuff that you know by the second half of your time that you didn't know at the first half of your time. And um, it's pretty standard that you make every mistake under the book. And I was no exception. I made, you know, every standard mistake under the book that you could possibly make. Um, I was very fortunate that I had a, a group of people around me who were super supportive, who were equally excited about um, our purpose, our mission, um, and were very patient with me and very tolerant of me and gave me a lot of uh, support and good advice uh, over the years that um, helped me grow. I learned uh, a ton of stuff. It's hard to pick just one, but certainly, you know, one of the things that has uh, sort of is clearest to me in hindsight is that uh, someone who starts in that world very uh, coming from a science base, uh, as I did, um, and coming from a style of thinking that's kind of more logic driven. Here's a rational argument why this makes sense. That that didn't always work in leading and, 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 and inspiring and motivating people. Uh, but I'd actually played a lot of sports uh, as a younger guy and including some team sports. And it took me a while to make the connection, you know, in team sports, it's not really about, you know, the logic, you know, it's about connecting with people, speaking to their heart and getting them fired up about your big goal. Your goal is to win the game. Uh, or the championship, and that that was an appropriate, you know, something that one wanted to carry over, and there were ways of doing that. And so, as a young guy, I didn't have a lot of patience for people, and I just focused on, look, here's the logic. If you don't get it, why don't you get it? Let's walk through your arguments and shoot them down one by one, and move, go, <laughs> you know, which is not an uncommon approach of kind of driven um, younger entrepreneurs who have who come from more of the logic science background. Um, but over time, I learned to, uh, I got some, I remember there was a, uh, an old friend of mine and we were in a small group and we were talking about our stuff and things we were going through. And I remember he said, Safi, your thing is you lead from the head, not from the heart. And you have a big heart, just show it. And I was like, oh, huh lead from the heart, not just the head. Kind of makes sense. And um, that, that, that stayed with me for a long time. Lead from the heart, not just the head. Listen to the music behind the words when people are talking with you. Um, it comes back to asking questions on the personal side and relationship side and communication side more than just the fact side what is the music behind their words? If they're talking about their salary or their compensation or their project, you know, there's, and you're not getting it. Something's not really adding up. There's something else going on. Now what's the tone there? And then try to see if you can surface what's going on there. And that usually ends up being a lot more productive. So I learned a ton of stuff. Those were just, you know, a few of them. Uh, last question. Basically, we always um, ask a question that we've been wondering for a while, and then we compile it into um, an episode after we've got about an hour's worth of content from it. Um, so I think right now you may be um, one of the last guests that we'll be asking this question to. But we always ask, what 
makes a life worth living. What makes a life worth living? Mm -hmm. Hmm. I would say three things. One, being surrounded with love. Two, elevating others around you. And three, improving yourself. Never stop being to continuously improve yourself i love that man tell these guys where they can connect with you uh and tell them if you've got any closing messages uh if you go on my website loonshots.com uh you can sign up there i have a newsletter that loonshots letter that comes out uh, once or twice a month with stories kind of like the stories we've been talking about and uh, you can get that free chapter there and um, I'm on all the usual social media stuff that you can find there as well. What a great episode with Safi that was. What great questions can you ask this week? Just as a reminder, guys, this video interview is up on our YouTube channel. We offer a healthy, wealthy and wise newsletter every Monday with the best advice and studies from around the world. And we would also love if you could help us out and leave a favorable iTunes review as this helps us to get on the best guests we possibly can. All are linked below. I will see you on Monday. Thank you so much for tuning in.